Our sermon passage for this morning is Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for this word from your gospel. And we read here instructions about things to do and not to do, but also about how to be and not to be. And we thank you this morning that if we are in Christ, that you are making us into whole people, real people, undivided people. And we pray that that ongoing work of the Holy Spirit will continue. Now, Lord, as we look more closely at your word this morning, we pray by your grace that you would speak again through what you have spoken to us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, our minds, that you would make your word living and active and sharp, divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judge, particularly in light of this passage, the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and not only the things that we do. And thank you for the grace that comes with all of that, knowing that in Christ, that we are fully loved, fully accepted, already righteous because of his sacrifice. Help us now, Lord, help us to walk and speak and listen in faith. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And thank you for the kind invitation to be able to be here this morning. It's a lot of familiar faces uh, here, uh, but some faces that look older uh, <laughs> since the last time that, that I've seen you, which is wonderful, wonderful. Matthew chapter 6, I want to begin this morning 
uh, with a term that if you're in the technology world, it might be a term that you're familiar with. The term is the minimum viable product. It's a technology development term. And basically what it means is, is if you are developing something to go online, whether it's a product or a platform or a website, some kind of functionality, if you take this philosophy, then what you're going to try to do is develop whatever that thing is as quickly and as inexpensively as possible. So you're going to put something out there in the world that is functional but is not yet finished. The idea is that people will interact with whatever that thing is that you've created there in the online world and you'll get real-time feedback from whatever that thing is and continue to develop it out until it eventually becomes a more mature version of itself. The minimum viable product then provides the base layer that you're meant to build on. You start with as little as you possibly can. So it's a focus on the smallest amount that you can put forth while still achieving some measure of your goal. Now, even if you're not in the technology world, that idea of focusing on the minimum ought to resonate with you because in large part, that's who we are as people. We really like focusing on the minimum. We did it when we were kids. We would ask, how many pieces of broccoli do I have to eat? That is a focus on the minimum. And then when you get a little bit older, you get into PE class and you ask, how far do I have to run? And then you go to college and you look at the syllabus the first day of class and you ask, how many papers must I write for this class? And even still today, if you're an adult in the room, we often ask things like, how much do I have to give? How much time do I have to spend? Or for all the introverts in the room, how long do I have to stay? So we are people who want to know what is required of us. And many times we want to know the least amount possible. And there's a lot of areas of life where that's fine. It's fine to do that. Stuff you don't really enjoy doing, you're not particularly good at, it's fine to know what is the minimum amount required of you. But there's other areas of life where that is a very destructive way to approach things. For example, can you imagine taking a minimum viable product approach to marriage? Where you stand at the altar next to the person and you kind of, sort of, maybe, mostly commit to better and possibly worse, but just let me know the minimum that I have to do in this relationship to get by. It's not going to work very well in that context. And so it is with following Jesus. Jesus will not allow his followers to settle for the minimum. He requires of us something more. And in your study of the book of Matthew, no doubt you've seen this before already, particularly as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, and you find Jesus in the Beatitudes flipping the values of his culture upside down to where no longer are blessed or the healthy, no longer are blessed or the wealthy, blessed are the people of prominence. Instead, you find, no, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the poor. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for their righteousness. It's an upside-down kind of mentality. And then, as Jesus exits out of the Beatitudes into the remainder of his teaching, you see him re-educating the people that are listening to him about what it means to really follow him. And his re-education really hinges on this phrase that he has said many times leading up to our passage today. The saying is this, you have heard, but I say. So Jesus is saying, I know you think you know what the reality is, but I have to re-educate you based on the authority that I am bringing to the situation. You have heard, but I say, and he said this so far in Matthew about murder, about adultery, about divorce, about taking oaths, about seeking revenge, and about the nature of love. And in each one of those times, as Jesus re-educates his followers, he refuses to allow us to settle for the minimum required in each one of those situations. You have heard you should not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard, do not break your oath. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. You have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, and so on and so forth. In each case, Jesus is refusing to settle for the minimum and instead pushes his followers further and deeper, which might well cause us to ask, what in the world does Jesus have against the minimum? Because the minimum is a much easier bar to clear, and frankly, it can, and that pragmatism can actually make life a lot simpler sometimes. So what does Jesus have against it? Well, what Jesus has against the minimum has to do with his area of focus, specifically this. Jesus isn't so much concerned with the what. He's concerned with the why. In other words, Jesus refuses to focus merely on the action a person takes or doesn't take. He's looking for something deeper. He's pushing us to look past those physical surface level actions to the motivation behind them because Jesus' primary concern is the heart. And that same pattern of pushing past the what, way down into the why, continues as we get into Matthew chapter 6 this morning. And Matthew chapter 6 is really, at least in this passage that we've read together today, is really set up by verse 1, because that is a verse that forces us to move beyond the what and into the why. Verse 1 says, Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by men. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then after that set up verse, Jesus moves into three very spiritual actions that can nevertheless be meaningless if we don't go with Jesus beyond the what down deeper into the why. The first of these spiritual actions that we read that Jesus starts with is the very spiritual action of giving. 
Now, giving is important to us, but as important as it is to us, it would have probably been more important to a first century Palestinian audience because giving to the needy was one of the big pillars of religious life, even for the nominally Jewish person in that day. That's partly because there was a spiritual mandate toward generosity and giving to the needy. It's also partly because of the overwhelming need of the day that people found themselves in. And in the midst of this very spiritual action of giving, Jesus drops a grenade of a warning because according to Jesus, there is a way in which you can do that what? That very spiritual action of giving very loudly. So you can do it in a way whose intent primarily is to be seen by other people. The analogy that Jesus uses is with trumpets. You can do it with trumpets. In fact, you might say that people who give in this way are tooting their own horn. See what I did there with the trumpets? Jesus says if you choose to give this way, then you're a hypocrite. And that word hypocrite there is a word that was originally used for stage actors on a play. And in those times, when people were acting in a play, they didn't just play one part, they would play many parts. And the way that you knew that somebody was moving from one part to the next part to the next part is because every time they would change roles, they would put on a different mask. Jesus says, this is what you're like if you give like this. And probably all of us have known people like that. Probably all of us have been people like that. Where you posture yourself as someone very generous in this case. And yet you know, you know in the back of your mind that the whole reason you're doing that thing, whatever that thing is in terms of your giving that you're doing, that you're doing it primarily to be seen by other people. And in response to that, Jesus says that his followers ought to go to the opposite extreme. That their concern for both God and the poor among them ought to be so great that in their giving, they have no sense of self-awareness at all. And then he moves on to the second religious action that can be negated if you choose to only focus on the what and never go deeper to the why. And what he addresses then is prayer. Now, again, in that context, individual prayer was appropriate at any time. Any time of the day, anybody could pray individually. However, the really pious people of Jesus' day prayed publicly at three specific times per day. Morning, afternoon, and evening. And it was the same three times every day. Now, you can imagine that if you were living in that culture and you knew that prayer happened at the same three times every day, that no matter where you were, whether you were in school or whether you were at the market or whether you were at home, wherever you were, that at that particular time, everybody was going to stop what they were doing and they were going to pray, you can imagine how easy it would be to manufacture your schedule to make sure that at that appointed time, you were at the opportune place with the right people. You could configure your day to make sure that when the time of prayer came, you were with the people that you wanted to make sure thought well of you and were impressed by you and have it all look like just happenstance. Jesus says this also is hypocritical. 
that you're focusing on the praise of the people around you rather than the internal motivation for what prayer is supposed to be. But he goes on in this case, and he says that the hypocrisy of prayer is not just about being seen, it's also sometimes about the manner in which you pray. And he warns us against this kind of repetitious, showy, visibly big kind of prayer. And in doing so, he sort of calls us back to a scene in the Old Testament found in 1 Kings chapter 18. You might remember this story. This is the story of the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, where they meet each other in conflict on the top of Mount Carmel. Do you remember this? And Elijah sets up a challenge in between them, and they build two altars, one in front of the prophets of Baal and one in front of Elijah, and the challenge is simple. You pray to your God, I'm going to pray to my God. Whoever's God comes and lights the altar on fire, the sacrifice on fire, well, that's going to be the true God. And the Bible tells us that from morning until evening, the prophets of Baal did the exact thing that Jesus is saying not to do here. They repeated themselves. They babbled. They cut themselves as if by their repetition in prayer, they could somehow fabricate an action of their God. And so it went all day long until finally Elijah's turn came. And when his turn came, he actually made the challenge harder dumped a lot of water on the altar, dug a trench around the altar, filled that with water too, to where there's water everywhere. And then Elijah steps to the forefront and very simply prays, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. This is prayer, says Jesus. It's not mindless, endless, babbling repetition whereby the goodness of the prayer is measured by the number of words that are used at a given time. Instead, it is speaking with confidence and heartfelt integrity as you trust in the power and the character of God. So just like he did with giving, Jesus says that there's a safer way to pray. The safer way to pray is to focus on the intimacy of communion with God and to do it by yourself, to go into your inner room. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer He's not doing that at all. We know he's not doing that at all because he then goes and gives us a pattern that which we should pray in that we know today is the Lord's Prayer. And you might notice in the Lord's Prayer that all of the pronouns that are used there are plural in nature. Our Father, forgive us our debts. You notice that? This is by its nature a public kind of prayer. So clearly Jesus is not prohibiting public prayer, but he is warning us that we should be especially aware that when we pray in public, we should not fall into the trap of focusing only on the what and neglecting the why behind it. And then he moves on to his third spiritual action that can go off the rails very quickly when we only think about the what and don't consider the why. And this is the spiritual action of fasting. And boy, if there ever was a spiritual action, surely it was fasting. It's interesting, even today, fasting is one of those things that most of us would say, well, you know, 
a lot of us give and all of us surely pray, but fasting is one of those things, man, if you're, that's, that's for the really super spiritual people to engage in. Those are the people that really, really fast. And yet from the outset, Jesus, when addressing fasting, doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast, as if it's a foregone conclusion that his followers will be fasting. Now, part of the reason it's a foregone conclusion is because the Old Testament law required fasting. But it only required fasting on one day per year, the Day of Atonement. Nevertheless, various kinds of fasts were commonly practiced throughout Israelite history, always as a symbol of some deeper meaning than just abstaining from food. In fact, the expression fasting, the Levitical expression fasting, is literally means humble your souls. And isn't this what happens when we fast? Isn't it a vast humbling of soul when you have not eaten for about 90 minutes and you find yourself willing to give everything in your bank account for a Pop-Tart? <laughs> you get the headache that starts at the back of your head and moves all its way to the front of your eyelids, the bad breath that starts, and then if you make it through the entire night, by the time you get to the next morning, it's almost soul-crushing in how hungry you are. Man, how weak we are as creatures. What a humbling thing it is to deprive ourselves of something even for just a few hours. But like the other two, Jesus says that there's a way that this can go really, really badly. And that is that we can call attention to ourselves when we're fasting. He says you can do things like disfigure your face or stop grooming or sprinkling ashes we might do the same thing today in more subtle ways. For example, we might go to a dinner party and look for ways to very quietly and yet noticeably say, oh no, thank you, I'm on day two of a fast. In this case too, Jesus moves us beyond the minimum and reminds us that following him is not just about doing something. It's not just about the what it's not just about the very spiritual actions of giving or praying or fasting. No, it's not about those things at all. It's about the why. Now, when you really start thinking about that reality, that Jesus is not just concerned with what you do, but why you do it, that is a very hard thing to think about, isn't it? And one of the reasons why it's, so hard is because often we don't know ourselves well enough to even know the why behind what we're doing. I mean, how many times have you done something that in the moment you knew was the right thing to do, and just a few hours later, you looked back at that thing that you did, and suddenly you realized, oh my goodness, I may have done the right thing, but my heart was so divided when I did it. So how can we deal with this call of Jesus to move us beyond the minimum? How can we, how can we stomach this? How, how can we work with the fact that Jesus doesn't just focus on the what, but the why? Now, let me see if I can illustrate another reason why that is such a big issue. I want you to imagine a scenario that will be familiar to you if you have children in the room, particularly young children, and that is the classic dinnertime standoff. Maybe you've been in one of these. Now, sometimes you don't have a dinnertime standoff. It doesn't happen every night. 
probably don't have it with corn dog night or cheeseburger night or pizza night. You probably don't have it, but you probably do have the dinnertime standoff on asparagus night. So if it's asparagus night and you have children, you know that there's going to come a moment when there will be a test of wills at that dinner table. You're going to be staring across the dinner table at your child, and he or she is going to be staring at you, and it's just a question of who is going to break first. Will it be the adult or will it be the child? Now, probably at some point, if you're a parent in the room, there's going to have to be a moment when you're going to have to put your hand down on the table forcefully and say, I am your father, your mother. You will eat that asparagus. And probably, if your children are a little bit compliant, they will go through the mechanics of eating the asparagus. They'll chase it with milk or with french fries or whatever it is, but they will physically chew the asparagus and get it down. But what if on asparagus night, instead of putting your hand down on the table and saying, eat your asparagus, you did something different. You said, children, tonight I give to you a new command. Love your asparagus. That is a very, very different scenario than eating your asparagus. And for the kids, that is a crushing kind of command because they can do the what? They can go through the mechanics of actually eating the asparagus. But if you're telling them that the command is not just to eat the asparagus, but for something deeper to happen than that, well, there's no way that they can actually do that. And isn't that sort of what Jesus is doing here? That he's not just telling you that you should give or that you should pray or that you should even fast, but that you should do those things with the right motive. Now, why is it that Jesus can give that command to us and it not be crushing to us in the same way that a command like that given on asparagus night would be crushing? Well, there's two reasons why. One is because Jesus knows the true reward of what he is asking you to do. He tells you time and time again, three times, three separate times, he says that you will have your reward from the Father in heaven if you only move past the temporal award of having the praise from people thinking that you are very spiritual and religious. Now, that's all well and good, and that might motivate us to an extent to want to move past those things, but it doesn't really solve the issue that we have with our motivation, but there's a second reason why Jesus can make this command and it not be crushing to us. And that is because Jesus actually makes our why possible. If you go back to the dinnertime scenario for a minute, if the kids are old enough and self-aware enough, how might they respond if you said to them, tonight I give you a new command, love your asparagus. Perhaps they would respond something like this. Mom, dad, you've given us a crushing command here. We can do the what, but if you want something to happen to the why, you can't just give us the command. You actually have to give us new taste buds to go along with the command. And this is what Jesus does in the gospel. 
Because the gospel doesn't just give you the command to give or to pray or to fast. The gospel actually changes us from the inside out. It doesn't just focus on our actions. It changes our actions because believing in the gospel changes our hearts at the deepest level possible. Jesus makes us new people from the inside out, transforming us at the deepest level imaginable. We have new hearts now. And we can obey these commands from Jesus, not just to perform the actions, but to actually look deeper inside of ourselves. Jesus has made us new, but we are not all the way there yet, are we? We're not. So how do we respond practically then? Armed with the knowledge that we have been made new, that Jesus has done the internal work inside of us. We know that, and yet knowing that practically we have a long way to go, how do we respond practically? Let me just give you three suggestions. Number one, we respond practically by knowing ourselves. We know ourselves. That's how we respond practically. So part of the reason that we fail so many times in the why and not just the what is because we fail to recognize just how divided our hearts are. But if we approach things with a healthy enough awareness of who we are to know that we are going to be tempted in a given situation to want the applause and the praise of men, well, that's helpful from the outset, that we know ourselves and have a sober estimation of the divided nature of our hearts. Knowing ourselves then leads us to practical step number two, that we know ourselves and therefore we guard ourselves. So how do you guard yourself against wanting the praise of men instead of waiting for the reward of God? How do you guard yourself against doing the what without focusing on the why? Well, very, very practical ways. For example, you Take opportunities to actually give in secret. You make sure that the only time that you pray is not when you know people are around you, that the vibrancy of your prayer life is more vibrant in secret than it is in public. And then when it comes to fasting, you just look at the calendar. And you wait until you have a good amount of time when you know that the temptation is not even going to be there for you to show off your religious actions in front of people. You don't schedule lunch appointments. This is how you guard yourself in practical ways. And then the third thing that you do in response to this is that you just trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You know yourself, you guard yourself, and then you trust the Lord. Now, I suppose that when you know yourself and you look and you see, I often have divided intentions and motives. That one of the responses that you might have is to not do anything. So you think to yourself, well, Jesus isn't just concerned about the what, he's concerned about the why. And I know myself well enough to know that my why gets tangled up really, really often So I'm just going to wait to give, or I'm going to wait to pray, or I'm going to wait to fast until I know that my intentions are just right. Well, the problem with that is you will be waiting until you die. 
isn't the gospel big enough to extend even here too? That you know yourself, and then you guard yourself, and then you go ahead and you act, and in the midst of your acting, you trust, you trust that God's grace will extend to your motives, even if you don't know what they are right now. And that in that trust, you believe something else. You believe that Jesus is making you a whole person. Right now, friends, if you're like me, you find yourself in a lot of moments where you want to want. You know what the right thing is to do. It's clear before you, and you want to want to do the right thing. You wish you wanted. You're going to do the right thing, but you're going to do it gritting your teeth. You want to want. Isn't it good news to know that someday you won't have to want to want? Because someday Jesus is going to make you a whole person, an undivided person, where not only your actions, but the intentions behind those actions will be fully sanctified in Christ. And until that day, when we don't have to want to want anymore, we can trust the Lord and act in our giving in our fasting, in our praying, and in everything else that we do, that we can guard ourselves by knowing ourselves and trusting the Lord even when our why isn't where it's supposed to be. Let's pray together to that end this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have us on this journey to making us whole people. And we pray that by your grace, we would continue on that journey with you. Father, we do want to be people who are cognizant of the fact that we have mixed motives and bad intentions and divided hearts, and we thank you for the grace that makes up for what we lack, not just in action, but actually in thought and intention as well. And we pray that by your grace, you would help us to move forward in this. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and you do make up for what we lack. Now, Lord, as we continue in this spirit of worship, we praise you for the fact that we are on this journey, that we are on this journey together. We pray that we too would be people who do not settle for the minimum, that you would continue to help us see not just what we do, but the reason why, the intentions, the motives behind it. Help us to repent where we need to and trust you in your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.